What should be more motivating for us as followers of Jesus? Making the most of today or living for tomorrow? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Once again, you are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Monday, March the 28th of 2011, and as always, I am your host, Toby Logsdon. God bless you guys, and thank you so much for downloading this message today. It's a blessing to have you here with us. We're going to be covering Romans chapter 13, verse 11 today. Romans chapter 13, verse 11. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to that verse, and we'll go ahead and get started with that in just a minute here. I uh, wanted to tell you guys about what uh, what happened with me over the weekend. First of all, um, I got installed, uh, quote-unquote installed, as the pastor here at Linwood Evangelical Free Church uh, here in Linwood, Washington. And man, it was such a cool experience. It was, it was such a neat, neat experience. Uh, they invited some of the guys who have gone before me, some of the former senior pastors here. And um, in fact, the, the, the pastor who is here to give the charge to me and the charge to the congregation uh, happened to be the, the senior pastor here the year I was born. And what a neat guy. Uh, just had a really good time talking with him and getting to know him a little bit. And just a neat experience altogether. Had a good turnout for the service and everything. Um, yeah, it was was really special. Really a special day yesterday for me. Um, I wanted to remind you guys real quick before we get started that uh, this is the last few days. We're closing it on the last few days here. If you're interested in getting one of these BibleStudyPodcasts.org uh, window stickers, these clear little window stickers, uh, anybody who makes any size donation at all is going to get one of them, and uh, they're about, I don't know, two by four maybe, two, two inches by four inches. They're, they're pretty small. Uh, they're, I mean, they're about the size of an open hand. That's about the size I'd say they are. But uh, yeah, any size donation, and we're going to send you one of these. You can go to BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and on the right-hand side, you can click on the support box and make a donation through PayPal, or... Uh, you can uh, see that there are um, there's some instructions. There's an address there to send a check or money order through uh, through the mail if that's what you prefer to do. Uh, also, real quick before we get started, uh, I just got my copy of Rob Bell's book Love Wins, and I, I have not even opened it. I haven't looked inside the book yet, but as I was looking at the back cover. I was, uh, man, I I, I was already very aware of the fact that this is going to be just a a heap of garbage. I mean, this is just junk. The back cover says, God loves us. God offers us everlasting life by grace, freely, through no merit on our part, unless you do not respond the right way. Then God will torture you forever in hell. Huh? Now, let's just stop there. That, That right there tells me that there is something seriously, seriously wrong. Because if you do a search for the word torture, you will, you will never see in Scripture the word torture uh, in relation to hell. 
Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us that God will torture anyone in hell. And for Rob Bell to have that on the back of his book, uh, well, that, that can mean one of uh, maybe maybe two things. Um, first of all, it could mean that he's just stupid and has no idea what the Bible actually says. Uh, I don't believe that that is true. I actually believe that he is very, very intelligent. He's a good speaker. If you've ever listened to him speak or watched him speak, uh, he's got several videos on YouTube you can check out. So I don't believe that it's because he's uh, not informed or oblivious to what the Bible says. And the only other option there, really, is... um, that he is manipulating scripture, that he's not being truthful with what scripture says. And that is actually, um, you know, what I believe this whole book is based on. Uh, based on reviews that I have read about this book, it's pretty obvious that, uh, that he has no interest in preserving the integrity of the Bible. And that one quote on the back cover alone uh, blows his cover. You know, he, he might look like a sheep, but he smells like a wolf. And if it looks like a sheep and smells like a wolf, it's a wolf. So, yeah, I, I have no, uh, no problem putting that out there, that I think that he is intentionally deceiving people by putting that on the back cover. He is loading the argument in his favor just with that alone. And, of course, if you want a real uh, honest look at the arguments for hell. Uh, my, uh, my book was just published on Kindle, Amazon's Kindle, a couple weeks ago. It's called Get the Hell Out of Here. And of course, that's a question. We had that study here on Bible Study Podcasts, um, I don't know when, two years ago, about a year and a half ago. And uh, yeah, so the book is on Kindle. It's $7.99. You can get it. You can read it on your phones. You can read it on your computer. You can read it on your Kindle if you have a Kindle, whatever you prefer. So anyway, that information is out there, and you can you can go ahead and get that. And if there's enough interest in the Kindle edition in my, in my book, uh, I'll go ahead and self-publish it on paper as well. Um, so far, yeah, we, we've had some sales of, of, uh, of my book, but... Uh, Yeah, we'll just see what happens. Anyway, let's go ahead and get started with our lesson today with a quick word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for who you are, and we worship you for who you are. God, we pray that you will send your Holy Spirit to direct us into truth today. May your word transform our lives, because it changes our understanding of you and how you want us to act in light of what you've done for us. We love you. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me ask you something. Are you motivated by the future? I mean, a lot of voices, a lot of contemporary voices in our culture are almost screaming at us all the time to live for today. It's, it's not so blatant. Many times it's implicit instead of explicit. What about tomorrow? You know, I, I can't help but wonder. But the fact is that tomorrow will probably come, and with tomorrow will come consequences for what we do today, both good consequences and bad consequences. Nevertheless, businesses know that if you're thinking more about tomorrow than you're thinking about today, then you'll be less likely to do things like buy their product because you'll realize that the debt could be unmanageable. Uh, I sometimes wonder how many people end up in jail or prison because they were living for today. They were living for the present moment and failing to consider what the consequences could be when tomorrow comes. Or what about church leaders who get caught in a moment of moral failure? 
Again, I have to wonder if it's because they were thinking of the present and neglecting even the slightest consideration of the future. Well, should we think about the here and now? Absolutely. And should we make the most of it? I have no hesitation in saying, yeah, we should. Life is short, right? And I think that Paul would actually say the same thing. Today counts. Make it count. Think about it. I mean, if today wasn't important, then why would Paul have spent the last chapter and a half in Romans talking about ways of living out our faith in Jesus in a practical way? Today is important, but it's important that we live with one foot in the present and one foot striving toward the future, rather than having both feet firmly planted in the present. In other words, it's important that we live with an eternal perspective. That means living in the here and now, living in the present moment while remaining mindful of a future goal. And Paul's going to remind us today of what that goal is. It's the same goal that every follower of Jesus should have. Like I said, we spent the last chapter and a half looking at ways of living out our faith in a practical way. Well, going back to chapter 12, verse 1, we should remember that Paul is on the theme of living a life that's well-pleasing to God, and that living this type of a life is a way of worshiping God. We saw in our study of chapter 12, verse 1, that doing so is the logical response in light of all the theological understandings that we gained uh, through the first part of the book, the first eight chapters of the book. Well, moving into this chapter, Paul has discussed two things. First, he talked about the importance of submitting ourselves to the governing authorities, knowing that God has ordained their very existence and their authority. From there, he emphasized the importance of loving one's neighbor. But really, this is all one idea, because the debt or the obligation to love one's neighbor is actually just an extension of the thought that we shouldn't leave any debt toward the authorities unmet. We should never feel as if we've sufficiently met the obligation to love, like we've, we've never filled that cup up. Rather, we should feel like it's something we continually owe to others. So the idea is really to live a life of peace, harmony, service, and submission and love with not only those who are over us, but also those who live beside us. We saw in the previous verse that loving in this manner is the fulfillment of the law. And so Paul continues discussing our motivation for living this type of life, writing in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Now, let's be careful to understand what Paul means when he says, do this. He's talking about loving people. Not only people who are like us, but people who maybe aren't like us too. And that includes people who don't like us. We've all got them, right? I mean, people who don't like us for whatever reason, we've all got them. But the instruction remains the same. Love them. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul made the same point, but he worded it a little bit differently, writing, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's from Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And as we've discussed over the past couple of lessons, putting somebody else's needs before your own 
is exactly what it means to love. That is the definition of love. So why should we do this? Paul tells us, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. What a great image. I mean, do you sense the urgency? Wake up! It kind of reminds me of what the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 3. There we read, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And of course, we know that Jesus said, While I'm in the world... I am the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world in John chapter 9, verse 5. But but he also told us that as his followers, we're the light of the world. That's from Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. See, we're the light of the world only because the light of Jesus is within us. And that requires action on our part. You know, one of the primary reasons that Satan targets followers of Jesus is to discourage them. He knows that he can't take us out of the grip of Jesus. Nobody can take us out of the grip of Jesus. But if he can just discourage us and convince us not to let our light shine, if he can just convince us to become less and less effective at shining our light into the kingdom of darkness, and if he can just convince us to become more and more complacent, more and more apathetic, at the end of the day, he considers his mission accomplished. You know, Paul could have used a, a different, a couple different words for time. Uh, one word for time, one of the Greek words for time is chronos, which is the word that chronological or chronology is derived from. Uh, that would refer to a specific moment or day. For example, after Jesus was born, Matthew writes, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. So chronos is translated as the exact time in this case. But that's not the word that Paul uses here. Instead, Paul uses the word kairos, which is the same word that Jesus used when he said, take heed, keep on alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. That's from Mark chapter 13, verse 33. This refers to an age or a season. So with that in mind, Paul's reminding us here that we're in an era, we're in an age in which we need to awaken from our slumber. And of course, Paul isn't talking about literal sleep. There's no problem with, uh, you know, getting your eight hours of sleep every night. He's talking about people who are spiritually alive, but not spiritually awake, not spiritually active or alert. Jesus instructed us that while nobody knows when he'll return to establish his kingdom on earth, we should remain alert, watching for his return. And here's the underlying principle here. See, if we believe what Jesus said, if we believe what Jesus said and anticipate his return, do we really want him to catch us sleeping in the sense that we're not being active in fulfilling our responsibility to be light in the world? If we really believe what Jesus said, and we really believe that he's coming back, do we want him to catch us, for example, in the act of sinning? See, this is where we find the balancing point between living for today in light of a future hope. If we become comfortably tolerant with sin, just complacent with our sin, we're essentially sleeping in the light, remaining unresponsive to God in an age in which there's a lot of work to be done. 
The Apostle John wrote, Children, it is the last hour. That's from 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Now, this word that gets translated hour is really interesting. It can, it can refer to a season similar to kairos, but it can also refer to the time of day that the sun is up. Now, of course, when the sun's up, That's when work is supposed to be done. So really, what Paul's doing here is shaking us out of a state of being spiritually comatose, spiritually complacent. Now, those of you who are fans of of Keith Green's music, I'm a fan of Keith Green's music, uh, you're probably familiar with the song Asleep in the Light. It goes, do you see? Do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. And he goes on to write, Open up, open up and give yourself away. You see the need, you hear the cries, so how can you delay? God's calling and you're the one, but like Jonah you run. He's told you to speak, but you keep holding it in. Can't you see it's such a sin? The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and you, you can't even get out of bed. Man, I love those lyrics. Those lyrics are so convicting. I remember uh, the first time I heard those and I thought, wow, I am guilty as charged. You know, they're convicting to anyone who gives it a serious thought. The fact is that the world around us is under the coming wrath of God, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, maybe even our next-door neighbors, if they don't know Jesus, if they don't know Jesus, they're going to die under his wrath rather than under his grace. And there's no possible way for us as followers of Jesus to say that we're honestly loving the people around us and simultaneously be apathetic and even comfortable with them going another day under that wrath. See, if you haven't shared the love of Jesus with the people that you know who don't know Jesus, or maybe you've refused to even invite them to church or to share the gospel message with them for fear that it would be socially awkward or that they'd get mad at you, you haven't loved them the way that you're called to love them. So the call here is to act in light of the impending reality of Christ's return and God's judgment and to do it for the sake of of loving them. Now, there are some people out there who would dismiss this saying that uh, Jesus isn't coming back again, that he already came back. That's called preterism. Um, they'll say that Jesus came back in uh, 70 AD when the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Now, one of the most common verses they'll point to in support of that theological uh, misunderstanding is Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, where Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, I understand that that might sound like it would mean that Jesus is coming back within the lifetimes of his disciples. One thing we need to be mindful of, however, is that the chapter separations in the Bible aren't part of the inspiration of the text. They were put there by monks who gave chapter and verse numbers for the sake of making it easier to reference a particular part of the text. So with that in mind, we can't just isolate what Jesus said right there. Instead, 
of stopping there at the end of that sentence, let's go ahead and just read right into the next chapter as if there was no break between uh, chapters or verses. So we'd read, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Let's go ahead and stop there. So who were the, quote-unquote, some who would see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? Peter, James, and John, right? What they saw was exactly what Jesus will look like when he comes into his kingdom. It was a vision of the day in the distant future when the kingdom of God is established on earth and Jesus rules over that kingdom. Now, Peter, uh, who was there, he would go on to write, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. That's from Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. That's Peter reflecting, recalling that very day. He's reflecting on that day and what he saw and what happened. So obviously, uh, that was not Jesus talking about uh, the fact that the, the disciples who were there were going to see him come back to establish his kingdom. He was saying that there were a few, Peter, James, and John, who would get a glimpse of that, a vision of the future. Now, the other verse that people will use to support the idea that Jesus came back in the first century is Matthew chapter 24, verse 34, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now again, it kind of sounds like the second coming of Christ would happen in the first century until we take a look at the context of the passage. Jesus has just given us actually a, a living parable of sorts. See, in the last week of Jesus's life, he stayed at Bethany at night and he entered the city of Jerusalem a total of at least three times. The first time, he rode into the city as the king, and the people shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The next morning, he comes again into Jerusalem. This time, he enters as a priest. He was hungry, and he went to a fig tree to get something to eat from it. So, finding no fruit, what did he do? He cursed the tree, causing it to wither. You see, again, this is Jesus entering the city as a priest. As God's high priest, he was examining the worship of his chosen people, Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is symbolized by what? Well, two things. They're symbolized by a vine, and they're symbolized by a fig tree. And as the Lord of these people, he had rightfully expected fruit from the people that he had chosen. Instead, he found nothing. See, this is something that literally happened. He literally went up to this fig tree and found nothing. But it also has symbolic significance. Jesus came into Jerusalem and should have found evidence of the faithfulness of his people. He should have found fruitfulness, right? Instead, they were barren. They were spiritually barren. And thus, they had temporarily sealed their fate as a nation, 
as a people. God wouldn't be delivering them again until the very end. The disciples want to know what the end will look like, and Jesus describes the horrors of the tribulation the Jews will have to endure. And then he concludes this by saying, Truly I say to you, this generation... Wait a minute. Which generation? The generation that witnesses the tribulation that Jesus has just described. So he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so thus it's clear that Jesus wasn't talking about the generation which was present at that time. Instead, he was talking about the generation that undergoes this great coming tribulation. Now, how do we know that it didn't happen in the first century? Well, there's never been a time when the sun has been darkened, the moon didn't give off any light, or where there were stars falling from the sky. And there's never been a time when everyone has seen Jesus coming on the clouds of the sky in his glory. And those are all things that Jesus said that generation would witness. It didn't happen in the first century, so it's certain to happen in the future. Now again, the point of all this is to wake us up and remind us that Jesus is coming back. And thus, we have to avoid spiritual comatose. We have to avoid spiritual atrophy, complacency. There's still time to bring our friends and loved ones into the body of Jesus. Paul next gives us the reason for living in light of this reality, writing, For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Now, there are some commentators who have taken this to mean that our salvation is uh, currently less than certain, uh, that we, we don't have any assurance of our salvation at this point. However, Paul isn't talking about justification here. He's already established that. He spent several chapters discussing the fact that because we've been forgiven by God, we have a new identity as new creations who don't face condemnation. So Paul isn't retracting that idea here. We're secure in our salvation. So what's Paul talking about? He's talking about the day when Jesus comes back and gives us salvation from the darkness of this world. We've already been given salvation in terms of being saved from the penalty of sin. Right now, with the grace and guidance of the Holy Spirit, we're being saved from the power of sin, and there will come a day when we're removed from the presence of sin. And that day now is closer than it was when we first believed. Knowing that the Lord Jesus is coming back should cause us to be alert. It should cause us to wake up and anticipate that day. In light of this coming reality, the love that we have for our neighbors should cause us to never, ever give up on reaching out to them, shining our light before them so that they too will long to receive the salvation that comes from trusting in Jesus, walking with Jesus, and going home to be with Jesus someday. The healthy balance that we need to find is the place where we live today in light of what's certain to come in the future. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that your word speaks so much about the work that we have to do and the things that you long to do through us. I pray, Lord, that this would be motivation for us, that we would be motivated by the reality of your coming today, that it would cause us to feel the urgency that exists in reaching out to our friends, family members, co-workers, anyone who doesn't know you. God, we ask that you would instruct us, teach us to become more like you. Give us your heart, Lord, 
Give us your heart for people. So that our hearts break, just like yours breaks, to see people dying without you. We love you, Lord. We live for you. You've bought us at a high price. And we thank you. We worship you for who you are. Teach us to be more like you and draw us near to you, nearer and nearer to you every day. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. When we see you, when we see you, when we see you, beautiful, you're beautiful, your love is sweet and beautiful, and I will stay here waiting for